This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. This is Nate Black for Software Engineering Radio. My guest today is Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a recognized expert in mobile technology who advises businesses on their mobile strategy, tactics, and training. He is the author of several books on mobile app development for O'Reilly Media, including Building iPhone Apps with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Jonathan is the host of his own podcast, Ditching Hourly with Jonathan Stark, and is a regular panelist on The Freelancer Show on DevChat TV. Jonathan, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Jonathan, a lot of our listeners might be interested in mobile development, but overwhelmed at all the different technologies that are out there, and maybe even wondering what are the mobile platforms that are available. In 2017, when we're talking about mobile apps, what are we talking about? Yeah, it's it's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> so I'll give you a little background. When the iPhone was announced in 2007, I... At that time, I was a web developer, a solo, you know, self-employed, independent contractor, consultant, and I was doing web development. And when the iPhone came out, it just immediately clicked with me, and I was like, "This, that's what I'm doing from now on. That's it. That's the new thing." And it was, I was sort of, I think, lucky in that regard because I immediately jumped on that as a thing that was. It wasn't that I thought it was going to be huge. It was just that it was the. It was something that I just personally wanted so bad. You know, I was right in the target market of that person that was carrying around a Palm Pilot and an iPod and all these these accoutrements that I just, you know, I was like, man, that's exactly what I want. Awesome. No, no yucky keyboard, all screen. That sounds great. Pinch to zoom. Oh my God. So I was totally blown away by that and through my, but, but I was a web developer. And when the, the iPod, iPhone was initially announced, there was no, there was going to be no app store explicitly it was said by Steve Jobs' mouth that the way that you were going to develop for this platform was to make web apps. And I was super excited about that because I was already a web developer. And I dove straight into figuring out the, you know, exactly how to make that work. So at the very, very beginning, it was simple. Building a mobile app for iPhone, because obviously that's what we're talking about here, iPhone and Android. Building a mobile app for that platform at that time was building... A website that was finger friendly and formatted to, you know, be suitable to that form factor. You know, a very small touchscreen environment. Fast forward ten years, you know, just it was like the the tenth anniversary just recently of the iPhone. Now Android is enormous. It's it's bigger than iPhone. Depend, you know, in terms of units shipped, and the the landscape has dramatically changed since then. So now I think it's fair to say that mobile computing is the dominant computing platform on planet Earth. Uh, It's in terms of a variety of things. You know, unit shipments are something like three to four times more than desktop shipments. The usage patterns on mobile are dramatically higher. People spend a lot more time on their mobiles than they do on a desktop or laptop computer. Uh, the traffic, internet traffic is higher on 
mobile, email opens are higher on mobile, 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 all the way down the chain. So in that 10 year period, mobile computing has become the primary computing platform and the, the landscape has become as big as and bigger, in fact, than the desktop landscape ever was. So it's a huge, huge, complicated question. And for me, when I started, it was, it was easy to stand out in what was at the time a relatively small pool. If you wanted to be a world-renowned you know, mobile web developer, it wasn't that hard because there were none you know, in January of 2007. And then in, in February of 2007, there was at least one, and that was me. So, you know, and there were a few others, you know, names that, that popped to mind, but there weren't that many. And it was, it was easy to attract the attention of people who were interested in that other people who immediately grokked that the iPhone was going to be a big thing and later Android. So O'Reilly came around and, uh, I, I was talking to a senior editor there, wrote a book uh, called, you know, that you mentioned building iPhone apps with HTML, CSS and JavaScript, which was at the time. Uh, one of a kind. It was it was essentially how to build what is now called a progressive web app with the technology that existed at the time to create a an app like experience in the web browser. And by app like, the only things most of the things we really had to look at were the internal iOS apps, like the settings application, the music application. So scrolling lists that with drill down and you know toolbars and uh, that sort of thing. So now it was, so it was very straightforward back then. Now for me, the concept of mobile development is, you know, a hundred times more diffuse than that. It's almost like you have to pick a specific area to specialize in, in order to even have a conversation about what it is that you do in mobile. I'll give you a couple of examples. So of course you can make a mobile app. And by mobile app, when I say that, I mean a native mobile app built with Xcode or Eclipse or Android Studio or whatever that is published in an app store that is downloaded through an app store and installed locally on the device. Not something that runs in a web browser. It's it's a a full, you know, uh, a first class citizen in the operating system that can be granted access to things like the sensors and the radios and the, the actuators and the contacts and other information, personal information about the person who owns the phone. So there's that. And that's probably what most people think about when they think about mobile development. They think, oh, I want to make native apps. I want an app in the app store. But there are a lot of other things that developers can do that I would still file under mobile development that are not, they're not that sort of basic concept of building a, a mobile app. Another thing could be building progressive web apps for, uh, you know, a, a business's web experience that needs to be, for some reason, needs to be sort of higher fidelity than what you would consider a normal static website or a normal database-driven website like a WordPress site or something. There are other aspects of the operating system that your app can reach into. So a mobile development also includes things like widgets in the today drawer on iOS or home screen widgets on Android, which is a, a different kind of runtime, a different kind of development paradigm, different kind of interaction with the user. Um, another kind of mobile development is developing for sort of the constellation of 
of peripherals that surround mobile now. So you could be developing mobile apps for a phone would be a native app, but really it needs, it's meant to integrate with a security camera or a native app that, that really is just there to install a watch face uh, on, a, on a smart watch, Android Wear or Apple Watch. It's to, I mean, there's a million things. Interactive notifications is another kind of mobile development. You know, you could specialize in developing interactive notification push notifications so that let's say a bank can send you a balance, a low balance notice, and you can, and it shows up as a notification on whatever platform and you tap on it and it drills straight into either could, could drill into a, a native app for the bank. It could drill into a bot inside of Facebook messenger. It's just a, a million things that can happen in something as simple as an interactive push notification. Yet another kind of mobile development is, and I'll stop at this one because there are more, but another kind of mobile development I just alluded to, which is, is integrating inside of applications that are already installed, the, really the top 10 applications that are already installed on everybody's phone. So pretty much everybody's got a Maps application, pretty much everyone's got a chat application, uh, pretty much everyone's got some sort one of the one or more of the big social media applications and instead of trying to you know create your own mobile app which almost feels monolithic to me now uh, and and get people to install it and spend all that money to acquire users you could just build an app experience inside of one of these other apps that's already on somebody's phone so Let's say you, you work in the enterprise and you want to build a air quotes mobile app or a mobile experience. You could just create a Slack bot because all of your users already have the Slack app installed and you don't have to go through that discovery and installation uh, process that you don't have to get over that hurdle with your users because they already have Slack. So you just, you just create a bot and in a way you're, I still call that mobile development but it's, it's certainly not in the spirit of your original question, which is what's the landscape of mobile development. So I hope, I hope that wasn't too much information, but mobile has become such a, a universe of possibilities that it, it's really become that complicated. That is an excellent answer. And I think it illustrates just how complex the landscape is. You, you mentioned progressive web apps a few times. Could you drill into that a little bit and explain what is a progressive web app? Sure. Quick, a quick summary of that quick answer to that question is that it's at, it's a web page that runs in a browser on the device, but it has so many characteristics of a native application that it's, it's, it would be confusing to call it a web page. So it's called a web app the word progressive comes in there because the way that you write these is in an extremely defensive way. So you assume nothing. You, you assume that, you know, the capabilities of the browser, because a mobile user could run your progressive web app in Safari or Chrome or Firefox or Opera. Um, they could be on Android. They could be on a recent version of Android, an old version of Android, a recent version of iOS, an old version of iOS. You don't really know. So in a web space, in a browser runtime, you have to be extremely defensive and just assume nothing and say, okay, 
you build you build the app like an onion from the inside out, which is why it's progressive. So your app starts off by saying, you know, I'm not even going to assume that I've got a network connection. I'm not going to assume that this browser has hardly any capabilities at all. And I'm, you know, they're going to make a request to a domain, you know, a, a URI, and I'm going to return everything I can to bootstrap this experience. And if it turns out that the browser environment is horrible or the, the OS is horrible and it doesn't have the capabilities I need, I'm going to give them a standard web page and they'll be able to interact with my business or service or experience in a way that they can get done what they want to get done. But if it turns out that they have just to pick one out of the air service workers available in the browser, then what I'm going to do is install a bunch of offline code so that the next time they come to this page, first, I'm going to check and say, Hey, do I have an internet connection? If I don't, I've got a bunch of really smart fallbacks in place locally installed on the phone in the browser that will allow them to get what they want to get done done. And later on, it'll sync with the server when they do have a connection. So that, you know, and there are all sorts of user interface affordances to make it feel like a native application, you know, understanding touch and multi-touch and swipe and pinch and, you know, multi-finger gestures and those sorts of things. So it's this, it's a, it's really an approach to developing a web app that creates incredibly resilient piece of code, I guess. Uh, so you end up with this fast app that can run in any browser that is, is going to probably deliver a different experience in every environment, but is going to allow your users to get done what they want to get done with whatever tools they currently have available to them. So it's very, it's very slick, but it's as complicated as it sounds, which is very complicated. It sounds like there is some disadvantage in that it's complex to develop that app, but it must have some balancing advantage. What's the advantage? Why do people choose to develop progressive web apps? Sure. Okay. So there's really two levels for that question. One is why would I develop a web app at all instead of a native app? And the answer to that question is that you want to reach the widest range of users. So certain businesses don't need to reach the entire world. They don't need to reach the 4 billion people that have smartphones or, or cell phones anyway. They don't need to reach that large of an audience. They only care about people who have Android because they sell Android things, or they only care about people who have iPhones because they think that that's the the top end of the market. And we only care about rich people or whatever. Um, Some businesses don't care about reaching the broadest possible user base. But if you do care about reaching the broadest possible user base, you probably going to lean toward a web solution versus a native solution at first. You should probably have both eventually, but at first, when you're deciding how to deploy your resources over time, having a really nice mobile web experience is a really good first step. So that's a reason why you might want to go with a web experience. Why you would go with a progressive web experience is that it's really the, it's really more of the same, you know, the using a progressive approach, gives you even broader reach within the the web space. So as I described, there are still lots of older browsers and older devices in circulation. And if you take a, what I would call a standard non-progressive mobile web app approach, usually what ends up happening is, is the developer creates something really slick and, and 
you know, beautiful and a really immersive mobile web experience, but it only works on the latest devices in a couple of browsers like Safari and Chrome. And that's it because they use features without regard to, they, they basically use newer features that aren't available in older stuff. So things break in older, older devices. So using a progressive approach is more complicated, but it, it's going to, you know, deliver the best brand experience for everyone. So if you have a really, really diffuse user base, I'm trying to think of something like, um, well, one, one I worked on was for the Red Cross and they needed to have really good offline support because it was, it was this particular application was meant to be in available on phones for people who are going into disaster areas. So it was almost certain that they weren't going to have internet even on a cell phone. So it needed to be something where, you know, at the airport on their way, they could visit this application. It would install itself locally on their phone so that when they got to, even though it was in a web browser, so when they got to where they were going, they could pull it open and say like, okay, I'm on the ground. I see the actual situation and I won't even go into some of the examples cause it's terrifying, but okay, I've got this horrible situation. I'm freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. Uh, I don't have an internet access. What do I do? And they can open up this web page, and and it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's a web page that works offline, an offline web app. Uh, and they can you know search it and find the piece of information that they need in the moment. So it's, so it depends on your use case which whether or not a progressive web app is is the, the right move for your company depends on who you're trying to reach, what their expectations are, what they're trying to get done. You know, it's, it's not, it's not like, I'm certainly the last person to say everybody who builds a website should be building a progressive web app so that it could be used on every single phone. You know, I'm, I'm not like that. You know, people have limited resources and they have to decide what they're going to do, but that's, that's why you would pick something like that. Could you contrast progressive web apps with native mobile apps? Uh, in mm -hmm. particular, you mentioned that progressive web apps are loaded in the browser. How are native mobile apps distributed? Okay, great question. Typically, the most common way that you would distribute a native app is through a platform app store. So in iOS, it's the app store that's on, you know, pre-installed on iOS devices. And on Android, it would be the Play Store or possibly if you're on a Fire device, you know, Amazon Fire device from Android to be Android-based, it would be the Amazon store. So there are pros and cons to that, you know, going through somebody else's store that are not dissimilar to a physical bricks and mortar retail environment. So if you sell soap and you you want to get it to people, you kind of got two options. You can spin up a Shopify store and sell your soap, or you can deploy your salespeople to try and get it placed in Walmart. And if you get it in Walmart, you are going to have to play by Walmart's rules in many ways. And they might, might tell you how you're going to price your soap. They might tell you how much money they're going to take from you to sell your soap. They might tell you how much you have to make. You know, there's, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a, let's call it a partnership. I think it's a little one-sided in most cases, but uh, it's the same way with a platform app store. 
for the sake of conversation, I'll just talk about the iOS app store. Cause that's the one it seems most people care about. So the iOS app store, you, you would, if you were going to put a, a true pure native iOS app on people's phones, the way you would go to the, through that process is you would design your app, you would build it on a Mac using Xcode and you would uh, sign it with Apple's security certificates. You would upload it to their store, but you would register as an Apple developer, an iOS developer, I should say, uh, you pay them to be an iOS developer. Uh, you do all the things I just said, you upload it uh, through iTunes connect. It would go through a review process by people at Apple to make sure that it wasn't doing violating any of their terms of use, which, uh, I think are, yeah, it, they're complicated. Let's put it that way. So they're, they're, you can't do whatever you want in other words. So then they say, okay, you either get approved or rejected. If you get rejected, they may or may not be specific about why you got rejected or tell you if there's anything that you can do about it. Uh, so that approval process can take some time. It used to take a lot of time. It's much better now. Um, nowadays it's, it's more like, you know, a day I'm told, but, um, in, you know, usually, but it, you know, you can get rejected. So that's not cool. That complicates matters, especially if you've on a deadline with a client and there's an event coming up, it can be problematic. Uh, then once it's in the app store, you, you know, people, it shows up. So people either your users, potential users are either searching around in the app store for the kind of thing that you do. Maybe you have some sort of photo editing application, uh, you know, where you can take a picture with the app and use your finger to draw squiggles on it or messages or funny face or whatever. And so maybe people are searching in the app store for funny face pictures or meme maker or something like that. So you kind of have an SEO situation like you would with websites as if anybody who's built websites or used websites knows, you know, the, this, if you're searching for something, you usually start with a search engine, perhaps Google, and you get a huge list of results and then you cruise through those and find the ones that you think are going to meet your need. So there's that discovery process in the app store and, and that people have a hard time with that the same way they have a hard time getting to the front page or even the top of the front page of a Google search result. So you can do things like buy ads inside the app store. You can do things like, you know, go around and, and buy ads all over the internet or do some marketing and try and try and raise awareness of your app so that people would search for it by name in the app store, or perhaps go to your website and click an install now link, which will take you to the app store. So, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, people call it a walled garden. It's, it's, somebody else's store and they maintain a, a high degree of control over it. It's highly curated and you are very much at the whim of their, you know, taste and on any given day. So it's very, it feels like people, I don't know, people are probably too young to remember this, to remember the music business, but I used to be a musician. I went to school for music and in, in the nineties, the, the music business in radio were a huge gatekeeper. You didn't matter really how good you were. Nobody was going to hear your music unless it was on the radio. That was, that was it. That was the only way. And that's, that's what the app store feels like to me, where you're, you're saying like, you know, if, if Apple smiles on you and features your app, you're going to have millions of downloads, but there's only so much space to be featured and you're in competition with Facebook and EA and Google. 
and you know, so it's, it's a, it's a com very competitive marketplace. So anyway, uh, I'm sort of soapboxing about the idea of being in an app store. Personally, I'm not a big fan of it in terms of for, for people who are in their, you know, in their apartment and they're thinking, you know, I've got this day job and I'm thinking about making an app that could make some a good side income for me. Um, the app store offers a lot of stuff done for you. You know, you don't, you don't have to figure out a payment system. Touch ID will just work for you. People can, iOS users can just buy your app. It's very, the barrier to entry is very low for them to buy it, but your job in, in getting them to be aware of it is pretty high for a solo and indie developer. It's pretty high. So that was a very long answer. There, there are other ways to install apps that we could talk about if you wanted to keep talking about that. I'd like to find out if it's possible to take one of these progressive web apps and package it in such a way that it can be distributed on the app store. And if that's the case, why would someone choose to go that route? Mm -hmm. The answer is yes, you can do that. And the way that you do it is you, you basically build a special purpose browser that has your assets baked into it. So it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a web browser that can only go to one URL and you, you bundle that together and you submit that as an app. So the first, and, and people call that a hybrid app. So it's a kind of a mix of a native app because it is installed natively and it can access things like the camera and your contact list and the accelerometers and the, you know, vibration motor. But it was written, you know, for a web developer, this is sometimes an attractive approach because they can use their existing skills. They don't have to learn Objective-C or Swift or Android, Java. They can just use HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, mostly just JavaScript, and build an application that would run in a browser, at least in a modern browser, and then just sort of bundle it together into a, an application. So the, the first hybrid app wrapper was PhoneGap, and that was extremely popular. Yeah, so popular, in fact, that Adobe bought the name and acquired the team that built it. And they spun out the, the core engine of it as an independent open source project uh, under the Apache Foundation called Cordova. So, that's the, so Cordova and PhoneGap are almost synonymous, but not quite. And another one that people might be familiar with is Ionic, which is a, a wrapper, a sort of a convenience wrapper around Cordova. And so these are just, these are just sort of a leg up or it's like a, a bunch of code that allows you to more quickly get started wrapping your web app as a, as a, um, a hybrid native app. Let's see if I understand when you wrap a web app as a native app, you are packaging it together with a special purpose browser and the JavaScript is going to execute in that browser and the rendering would also be done in, in the browser. Is that right? Yeah. It's it, browser is a loaded term though. It's, it's actually a web view. So if you think of it as the part of the browser in the, the big, the big window part of the browser, but not the, none of the Chrome part of the browser. So none of the, the URL bar is not there. The, you know, Safari tools at the bottom aren't there. 
So it's kind of like, it's sort of similar to if you go to say Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or something and you tap on a link and the screen slides over and you're kind of on somebody's website, but you're still inside of Facebook. You know, if you're familiar with that experience, it's just that piece. So it's just the web view piece or there's different names for it technically, but it's, it's a web view. It's a, it's a, it's a rectangle that understands HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And you can take that rectangle and bundle it with some, some sort of basic resources that will allow it to work offline. And, and in fact, you can have some native to JavaScript bridging that allows JavaScript to go outside of the normal browser sandbox and get access to like your microphone. I mean, browsers can kind of do that now anyway, but regardless, the idea is that you, you write a web app and then you, you stick it in a wrapper, which is a little bit complicated, but it's a heck of a lot easier than learning how to develop a native iOS app from scratch. And you can, you can do that and you can make it work. That approach I was a lot more interesting maybe five years ago because especially for enterprise customers who had of just hundreds or maybe in in some cases more than a thousand internal employee applications that were web applications that were typically accessed by their employees on desktop computers. And so imagine you're in a situation where you're, you're a CTO of something like, let's just say HP, and you've got a thousand, literally a thousand applications, internal applications like human resources and professional development and 401k. I mean, uh, task tracking, project management, a million internal applications, and, and you've been accessing them. Your employees have been accessing, the, accessing them on the desktop, but now they want to access them on their phones. And you want them to do this because it means that that's more time they can be working. So how do you get, how do you port a thousand, what are essentially web applications, desktop web applications over to mobile? You're not going to build them all natively. That's insane. So it would, it's just not feasible. You know, you couldn't do it. So what you, what you could do was modify the existing web applications to be a little smarter about their screen size. You know, like, oh, I detect that I'm on a, you know, a teeny little screen that happens to have touch capabilities. So I'm going to reconfigure my, I'm going to rearrange the furniture a little bit here. And you can allow uh, people to access those web apps from their phones. If some of those web apps needed device access back, back, back five years ago, the big one was the camera and the contact list. Those are the two big ones. It's like, okay, push notifications as well. Those, those three things were big. It's like, you cannot, you can't really do that with a web browser in 2012. So, okay, what do we do? We could take, we could modify all our apps and the ones that need camera access or push notifications or contact access. We'll wrap those in PhoneGap and we can distribute those. There's, there's a, an enterprise way to distribute apps to employees that uh, doesn't require the app store. So you could do that. And that made a ton of sense a few years ago. I would say to people who have web skills now that if you want to find the quickest path from your current skill set and your tools that you like to use and your current level of expertise, if you want to start making mobile apps that are native, then you really should look at React, uh, React JS and React Native 
Uh, it doesn't let you do everything, but it lets you do 80 or 90% of anything you're going to want to do. And it, it makes just makes tons of sense to a person who understands web development. So if you want to do front-end native mobile, nothing compares to React in my opinion. So that would be the, that would be the first place I would send people. Let's talk a little bit more about React and React Native. What's the difference between React.js and React Native? Okay, so this uh, very little of importance. So the, the mantra of the React dev team, so like the concept behind React was to change the paradigm from write once run everywhere, which was kind of the, the feeling that was sort of the native web debate. So people who are into, you know, building native iOS apps and people who are into building mobile web pages and mobile web apps was like, well, I'm a web developer and I'm superior to iOS developers because the stuff I write runs everywhere. And the stuff that iOS developers run, write only runs on iOS. So they're, they're sort of at the mercy of Apple in many ways. This was perhaps golden handcuffs, maybe not a bad thing, but that was kind of the, the sentiment. Uh, it was also the promise of Java way back when, write it once and run it everywhere. So the React team would say, you know what, we're going to think about this differently. We're going we're gonna to say, learn how to take this approach and you can write everywhere. So you can write for everything with using basically the same approach. So the difference between, to get to your spe the specifics of your question, the difference between React JS and React Native, there's some there's some differences about setting up your development environment, but that's the kind of thing you do once and it's over with. But the big difference is that when you when you are well, the big similarity, let's start there. The big similarity is that you're writing JavaScript. So you write JavaScript, and if you're familiar with writing JavaScript, you're gonna be super comfortable writing React. There are a couple of concepts that are little take a take a few minutes to not to understand but to agree with the premise of if you follow me so like like with with react they want you to pass data there's like no globals in react really what you really want to do is be passing information from components up and down the think of it as a dom tree so you at first i was kind of like well what if you know that's kind of a pain if i got to pass something down like to a distant ancestor, but, but after a while you're like, oh, this is genius. So once the light bulb kind of goes on for you with, you know, a couple of things with React, the core premises, core premise of React, once the light bulb goes on, it's very easy to write it and it's really easy to debug, which is fabulous. So you're writing it, it's just like a JavaScript application and it, it's, it's just like any other, it's like Angular kind of, it's like Ember kind of, I mean, they have tons of differences, but it's a similar kind of feel to it in terms of complexity. But what's cool about React Native is that you can't just take the JavaScript that you wrote for a React.js application and you can't use it note for note as your React Native code, but you can use almost all of it. So it's not the exact same code base, but you can go through and, for example, replace uh, a div tag with a view tag. So like in a browser, in HTML, a view tag doesn't exist. But on iOS, a view is a specific thing, and it's kind of like a div in a sense. It's like a rectangular wrapper for a view. Well, it's called a view, but you get my, you get my point. So you, it's kind of 
it's an oversimplification, but it's kind of like you can take your React.js code, move it over into a React Native project, and go through and replace your divs with views and your uh, inputs with text area or something. I can't remember the exact tag names off the top of my head, but it's very, very similar. So I, I went from writing my first React.js app to writing a React Native app in like one day. It's really easy. And again, it doesn't, you can't do everything that you perhaps want to do in a native app with React, but you can do a lot of things. So as a first step, it'd be, it's, it's, a, it's really worth any, any web developer out there who's interested in developing mobile apps, either for the browser or for an app store, should really look at React. It's the most exciting thing I've seen in the last you know, five or 10 years in this space. Great. To summarize, you said that the creators of React are selling it as a write everywhere solution rather than a write once, run anywhere. Yeah, this learn once. To... Yeah, learn once, write everywhere. Learn once, write everywhere. This seems to mean that although there are some differences in the different platforms, you perhaps write some different code and adapt your code to that platform but you're still using the same paradigm in how you develop the code and you're still using the same tools. What yes. are some, some differences that you'd need to address? Some differences between the platforms? Yeah, some differences, say, between iOS and Android that would require you to code differently. It, it would depend on your... It, it depends a lot on the kind of application, but, you know, just the, the big one is a, a hardware back button. So Android has a prominent back concept that is system-wide and goes across applications. And iOS adopted it, I think, two versions ago, where in the top left-hand corner, you might see a little, you know, back to Gmail button or something, but it's not, it's not the kind of history that you get on Android. Uh, other things that are different about Android that you have to usually worry about are that there's a much, much wider range of devices. There's, I mean, it's some insane number of Android devices like I don't know. I, I'm not even going to guess. It could be 10,000. It could be 100,000. And I wouldn't be surprised. So all the hardware is different. And, you know, the, the layout of the, the core Android buttons could be in a different place. There's just a lot more uncertainty in that platform. So you might have to code a little bit more defensively there. But it's, it's really, th it's, it's things like that. You might want to style. I mean, you're going to inherit, your application is going to inherit, uh, let me back up, the React Native JavaScript that you write is at compile time is converted to pure native code for both platforms. So the application that's running at, at, on the user's device is not a hybrid web app like a phone gap thing. It is pure native. So you, you might, if you are changing the look of this, if you're changing the standard look of the normal iOS or Android elements on a page, you might want to do that differently on iOS to Android. So by default, you're going to get the native look and feel of like a list view or a date picker or something. But if you want to modify your date picker and do something custom, you're probably going to do that modification. You're going to style it one way on iOS and you're probably going to style it another way on Android. So it, it could be, you know, those sorts of things. There are just like little differences where you don't want to throw some a jarring sort of platform hostile design at an Android user 
that, you know, that's, that's going to make them wonder, what is this? What am I supposed to do here? How do I use this date picker? Date picker is a good example because it's very different on both platforms. So if you're going to diverge from the standard date picker, you're still going to want to make it platform specific. There's something interesting you said there about design considerations, and it goes back to your statements about progressive web apps and how, as a developer, you have to think about the different devices and different screen sizes, etc. Is there a greater importance and emphasis on design in mobile apps versus web apps of your or desktop apps? Is there a shift in the, the composition of teams to be more design heavy? Hmm. I would say yes. I'm tempted to say yes, but you can see even across the web, you can see that certain brands clearly spend a lot of resources, you know, time, money, bodies, creating really beautiful, immersive web designs, and some companies don't. So I think for companies who have already been delivering that kind of an experience on the web, the desktop web, you know, I'm thinking Nike comes to mind, uh, Apple is another one, that, okay, wow, they've, they've really spent a lot of time creating a, a luxurious brand experience in the web. For them, it probably won't change things that much because their internal makeup is already set up for that. It, the, the skills might be a little different in terms of implementing the execution of the design, but the design itself, I think, it doesn't require, perhaps it might require a little bit of learning, but it doesn't, I don't think, wouldn't change the makeup of the teams too much. That's, that's a very, that's a soft answer though. I mean, there, it depends big time. But there are some there are certain design const, uh, differences between the usage model that are you know like on the web desktop web you're using a pointer device that does not obscure the screen while you're doing it so you can put your navigation at the very top of the page because to move the mouse pointer up there doesn't block the whole page but if you move your finger up there your arm is blocking the whole page so it makes a lot more sense to put the controls at the bottom, which wasn't really a pattern that we saw on the desktop web. Really, I can't even think of one example that had the navigation at the bottom of the page. I mean, obviously the footer, but I'm talking about the bottom of the, the viewport. And on, on mobile, you really want to do that. Not, be, not, not only because using your meat pointer to, you know, reach up to the top of the screen is going to block your view of what, you know, of your beautifully designed and crafted experience, but it's hard to reach. You know, if you're holding the phone with one hand, which is the predominant usage model, your thumb is, you're not even using five fingers. You're really just using your thumb. And it's got a sort of fan-like reach. For, you know, if you're holding it with your right hand, you've got this bottom right-hand corner, this fan that it can reach. So you want to put all of your critical controls, like navigation, in that area so that it's easier for your users to reach without adjusting their hand position or, you know, there's things you can do on iOS, like, like, uh, double touch the home button and it brings the whole screen down. But you know, there, there, so yes, there are some different design considerations, but that I think any designer who is user focused and user centric is going to find that very, it's just works itself out. 
that's not, I don't think that's a huge shift. If your organization hasn't devoted a lot of resource and energy and time and money to design in the past, then yes, I think that you're going to have an even harder time uh, building trust and engagement with your mobile users because the bar is so high on mobile for really gorgeous, high resolution, fast experiences. How important is design and human interaction to the success of a web app? Is it something that is damaging when you don't meet that high bar? Uh, it really depends on who you're trying to reach. So I would have a different answer for B2C companies versus B2B or B2E. So if you've, if you're, you know, what did I say before HP and you've got a thousand internal applications, the, you've got a captive audience. Your employees aren't going to quit because you know, you're, I don't know, your human resources app doesn't scroll buttery smooth. You know, it's, it's, it's like, look, we just want to check our 401k. Can you give us a way to do that on our phones? And if they, you know, if they have to scroll down, a, a you know, five times to find that information on a long skinny web page, they're not going to quit. You know, would it be nicer if you had something more sophisticated? Yeah, it would, but you've got a thousand apps to port over. So, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. So on that side, I, I mean, would the design be nicer if it was nicer? Yes, that would be nicer. <laughs> but is it something to devote budget to? Probably not. You know, probably more, more important things to budget for. If on the flip side, if you're developing a game, then you better darn well make sure your graphics are pristine and your, your frame rates are through the roof and your glitches are non-existent. You know, so it's, there's just a spectrum of things that need to be considered or something like I've literally not bought productivity apps because their icon was too ugly to look at on my home screen. I'm like, you know, this is my, actually my favorite app, but the icon is so ugly. I cannot look at it every single time I open my phone, which is probably two or 300 times a day. I'm just not, not doing it. So yeah, I mean, there, there are different concerns on, on mobile from a design standpoint, the bar is way higher. And I think pretty much it's hard to think of an exception to a consumer application that, that you can just half-ass the design. I, I can't even think of one. Okay. To summarize, you, you mentioned actually three categories of, of apps grouped by their audience, B2B. Mm -hmm. So a business selling to another business, B2C, a business selling to a consumer. And the third one, I'm not sure if you had an acronym for it, but it was a business yeah, selling B2E. to in, B2E. So that's selling to an internal customer. What's the E in mm -hmm. B2E? Employee. Ah, business to employee. Okay. I like to go back and summarize a little bit. So far, we've talked about three approaches to mobile app development, progressive web apps, native apps, and React Native seems to be a third category in that you're using web technology to develop the, the app, but it's targeted to the native platform. Mm -hmm. Could, is, is it important as a developer to understand how the technology works? What would be the impact if you didn't understand the implication that you're targeting the native platform? Really, you just wanna, you wanna think about the application that you're planning to build and think through the roadmap of features that you would wanna add and then just make sure that, that React supported it 
or Xamarin is another one. I'm not super familiar with Xamarin. It's more of a Windows thing, and I'm more of a Linux person, Mac and Linux person. But but that's another one. There were other there are others. Um, what was that other one? Accelerator was another one. I think they're still around. And the the problem with these, the problem with some of them, the older ones that accepted the code that you are used to writing, you know, so it could have been Ruby, could have been JavaScript. We'll take your Ruby or your JavaScript and we'll convert it into Objective-C and create an application. And the, from a career standpoint as a developer, those always turned me off because I was learning their platform. I was learning how to be a titanium, Accelerator Titanium developer. And I didn't really want to hitch my, my, my uh, cart to that horse because I was a web developer. It was like the, it felt like the freest kind of developer where I could create something and literally everyone globally who was connected to the internet could access it immediately. And I didn't, I didn't like the idea of betting on one, betting my skills and the time I was going to spend to learn things, betting them on somebody's proprietary, some, some proprietary stack from a startup. So that always kind of turned me off and I never really, that's why I stuck with the, the sort of, uh, for native, for me personally, the projects I would take on were either going to be mobile web projects or phone gap projects where I was doing, uh, when, back when I used to do development, I don't do it anymore, but I would stick with that because I wanted to become better at HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, primarily JavaScript. I didn't want to get better at some company's weird, you know, domain specific language. So that, so that was a thing. So now with react, the thing about react that I love is that I'm still writing JavaScript. I'm, I'm writing and and I'm writing it in a way that even if I wrote react native minor, I don't know with, with a, with a, let's just say minimal, it depends on the app, but let's say minimal changes. I could use that same code and it would run in a web browser. But when it, when I compile it, it is running, it'll run as a purely native app on iOS or Android. (laughs) So like, it's kind of like the best of all worlds. And on top of it, Facebook, it react is come out of Facebook and Facebook uses it for applications native mobile applications that are used by billions of people. So it's kind of hard to be like, and, and they're sophisticated UI. So it's kind of hard to be like, oh, it'd be, you know, React's going to be limiting. You know, Facebook's not some little startup. They're making huge apps that are really good looking and cutting edge at scale. So, and not all of their apps are use React, but I'm trying to remember, I think Messenger is a React app. Their ad manager is a React app. I don't remember for sure. I could be wrong about those, but, but they make really nice looking apps that are super fast, very performant, uh, well-designed that are cross-platform and work at scale. So that's good enough for me as a web developer. It sounds like you also have a feeling of satisfaction when you're using React. Can you describe that experience a little bit? Why do you like to use it? Sure. I, I like the mentality. So like the thinking behind React is this is this is super subtle so if people don't have a lot of experience with this it might not translate but back in the day when i first started doing web development it was around 2003 so what's that 14 years ago 15 years ago and i started with php and php 
I can I can hear people holding their nose in the audience when I see PHP, but I like PHP and it's a little bit of a junk drawer, but and it was like the the code that you would inherit from from some PHP developer back then was almost always just total spaghetti code. It was like it was like an HTML page with inline CSS on the tags, with JavaScript sprinkled all over the place, with PHP tags sprinkled all over the place. It was it was a it was it was like a mess. So when you inherited one of these things, even if it was your own, if you had to maintain it for a long period of time, it got really, really frustrating. And people would do these weird things to try and make it easier and everybody had a different pattern. And it was still kind of early days of web development with with like a middleware. So, you know, it's not surprising that it it didn't come out perfectly formed. You know, the development practices and best um, uh, best practices and, and standards, they, they didn't exist. People, everybody was just figuring it out. So what, 10, 15 years later, uh, well, so then in the middle phase, everyone was like separation of concerns. That will solve the spaghetti code problem. And we started writing unobtrusive JavaScript and we started taking all of our CSS and moving it outside of the HTML. So it wasn't on individual tags. It was, it was sort of, uh, you had your HTML, which described your content, your marked up, marked up content. And that was your document. And then you had um, a, a one or more CSS files that were included that, that selected items in that page and would uh, modify them differently with different CSS. So this was the heyday of something called CSS Zen Garden, where different developers could it could provide different CSS, and it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like a competition to see how different you could make the exact same HTML page look with your different kind of CSS. Back in, at the time, it was pretty hard because CSS wasn't very advanced. So that was kind of like that was pretty eye opening. Like, wow, I can I can completely separate the styling of a web page from the content and the markup of the web page. That's cool. And then we sort of did the same thing with JavaScript and it was called unobtrusive JavaScript where you you could look through the HTML page and you didn't see any JavaScript in there. JavaScript was all included from one or more external files that would just like CSS, it would you could say, "Hey, any elements, any submit buttons in this form or any forms on submit, we're going to run this handler function and do some Ajax. And, and that was sort of the second big wave of web development, getting more sophisticated. So first we separated out the CSS and then we separated out the JavaScript and maybe things happened at the same time, but that's how I remember it. And what we ended up with was, and I think right before react came out, I was feeling this pretty hard. If you get a really complicated application, a web application that has lots of markup, lots of CSS and lots of JavaScript, it becomes really brittle because it's all separated, but it physically in the files. So we've separated the concerns based on the technology, HTML in these files, CSS in these files, JavaScript in these files, but they were tightly coupled. It depended on how flexible you were with your selectors, but the what was happening was tightly coupled. So if you had a sophisticated, let's go back to the date picker, you had a sophisticated calendar widget or a date picker that was for a vacation rental that had blackout dates and you couldn't, you know, in half days when you could register a really complicated calendar picker. 
you would have HTML in one place and you'd have CSS, a lot of HTML in one place, a lot of CSS in another place, and a lot of JavaScript somewhere else. So it was really hard to know when you change something in your CSS, which is global, if it was going to affect your calendar widget. You know, I, I want to change the way the, the, the header looks on this web page. Whoops, I broke the calendar widget. What? Those things aren't even related. But the way that CSS works and, and to uh, a certain extent JavaScript as well, it's very global on the page. So the separation of concerns was this sort of tech, technology-based thing uh, which was better than the old PHP spaghetti code where everything was just dumped into the bowl. But it still had this problem where you would regularly find yourself, you know, creating regression bugs. So like you, you would change something over here. It was like this whack-a-mole thing. Change something in the CSS for the header and boom, your calendar widget breaks. So, huh, what do we do about that? Along comes React. And React, when I first saw it, I had uh, I had a negative reaction to it. Because the first example I saw mixed together the, it's not exactly CSS, but it looks like CSS and the JavaScript and the markup all in one blob. And I was like, this is spaghetti code all over again. What a bad idea. And I said, you know, and I just, I was like, eh, and I, and I rejected it out of hand. I said, this is, this is not smart. So I came back to it a little while later because I can't remember why, but someone convinced me to give it a second look. And again, I had the same reaction, but then I actually just tried it and the light bulb went on and I was like, okay, what we're doing here is we have a different kind of separation of concerns. It's a different way to solve the spaghetti code problem. And it's a way that for complicated, complicated web applications is really, really smart where all of your, everything that you need to know about your calendar widget is encapsulated in this one little place. So it, even if even a very complicated calendar widget, it's gonna be like one blob of code. Maybe it's a page long, which would be, oh wow, that's so much code for the calendar widget. But you can, with impunity, change other things about the overall application and never worry for a second that those changes are gonna touch the calendar widget. This is incredibly important. I mean, this is important enough if you're just developing by yourself, but if you have teams, this is critical. Because if you've got a team that's working on a scheduling module, which has the calendar widget, and you've got another marketing team, developers working inside the marketing team to change the offers on the pricing page, the pricing team can break your calendar widget. So there's like, you know, if you don't use a React style, but if you do use a React style, everything is compartmentalized. And, and it's good for you even if you're a solo person, but it's also very good for, for the team if you, you know, if you're in a team environment, it's amazing. Um, but you know, it's for something really simple, it's overkill, but things get, you know, there's not a lot of mobile app experiences I can think of. They're just simple. It's, there's not that many of them. So if you're doing anything that's remotely complicated, it's probably worth the, it's not over engineering for something that's, it's starting to get a little bit complicated. For things that are really, really basic, like, I don't know, an app that just does one, like, I can't even, I, even a to-do app is complicated enough. So I, it's, it's, it feels like spaghetti code at first, but when you recognize that what happens is they've just separated the concerns differently, they've separated them in a functional way or a component way instead of in a technology way, all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is super cool. By keeping these, these units of functionality separate and 
keeping the information about the style and the logic in these units, is that what provides the separation of concerns? Yes. So you can, you can, it makes it easier to reason about what's going to happen when you make a change. So you're like, oh, I can see everything I need to see. It's almost like, it's almost like if you had, if you had a, a web application that was designed in what I would call the standard way, which is HTML, all of your HTML for a page in one place, all of the CSS, probably for the entire site in another place, and all of your JavaScript, probably for the entire site in another place. It's almost like you said, you could say to your development environment, okay, I need to make a change to this calendar widget. Show me all of the CSS, JavaScript, and markup together somehow. And your development environment would go, okay, let me go off and get that stuff, do, 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 pull it together. Here you go. And you can sort of do this with the, the browser, you know, developer tools in Chrome. You can kind of see like, okay, I can kind of see that, but it's not great. And more importantly, you would want your development environment to be able to tell you, if I change this thing on the sales page, what else is going to change? And with, and, and there's just no good way to get that answer. You know, possibly you could say, well, like hundred percent test coverage would give you that answer, but that's really hard too. So with react, you can look, you can see everything probably in a page, maybe two pages at the most. Okay. I'm going to look, I, I want to change this. What else is it going to affect? It's not going to affect anything outside this page. So, you know, you can make changes with impunity, knowing that you're not breaking something somewhere else or some other team's code. In episode 293 of Software Engineering Radio, we had Yakov Fine as a guest, and he talked about Angular as a component-based architecture. Is the React pattern or architecture something you describe as com component-based? You mentioned the word component. Is there a similarity there? Uh, I'm not super familiar with Angular. Uh, I, w I followed Angular at the very beginning, and now that uh, they just broke backwards compatibility, and I think I think Angular 2 was the break. I, so I haven't really followed it, so I can't really answer that question. But my understanding is that... I, I'm not even going to... My understanding is based on early versions of 1, so I, I really can't answer that question. I don't see Angular as a mobile solution at all, though. Angular, for me, Angular is a desktop browser uh, framework. Another thing that Yakov mentioned is that he viewed Angular as a framework and React as a library. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that does that fit with your understanding, or do you do you think of things in yeah. those terms? Uh, and the reason he said that is that he viewed Angular as being more opinionated, whereas he felt that for React, developers had to be, well, he used the word smarter and mm -hmm. perhaps no more. Is that, is, that the, is that the case or what's your view? I agree with that. I would agree with that. And I think Amber is even more opinionated than Angular. And those are the, the three that usually get discussed. And in fact, that's, that was one of the reasons why I sort of dismissed React out of hand is because I was like, ah, eh, this is another Angular, this is another Amber. You know, it's, uh, it's too opinionated for me. I like more flexibility. And it, I think React does offer more. You, you don't get a lot of opinionation. Opinionation. <laughs> it's not pushy. React is not pushy. There are a couple of core concepts that there's there's that you don't want to violate. You might not agree with them at first until you understand why they're great. 
And then once you understand, you know, like unidirectional data flow, it's, it's amazing. It's so great in terms of like, if you've got experience building, not even complicated, but, but somewhat complicated web applications or applications of any kind and, you know, stuff that involves network, network requests to servers that are updating information in a database. It doesn't take long for you to be like, man, I've got race conditions everywhere. I, and I'm getting these weird bugs from them. I don't know how to handle it. I've got things happening in the interface. Um, you know, the user is interacting with this thing. I need to update things all over the place based on the, you know, the, oh, they read this email. So I have to update numbers in five places. You know, it's, it gets very complicated. It's like, how do I send that information? Do I send the information across the DOM? Do I send it to the server and bring it back? React is like, there's just like, nope, there's one way to do it. You, you update the data, everything else. And then it, it goes from there. The data is the data store is like the top of the mountain and everything flows down to the interface from there. The interface, it does not go the other way. It's like, so other than, than that, there's not, you know, and like I said, passing parameters from, from, you know, parent to child is pretty strictly adhered to like not doing that. You might as well not be using react. Like that's, so I, I would agree with that. I would call Angular and Ember frameworks that allow you to create something pretty amazing, pretty fast. And I think that React creates amazing things, but it's in a different way. It's like, wow, I just wrote this code base that I can, you know, dupe and find replace practically and create native applications on iOS and Android. And, and I didn't have to learn anything but a couple of patterns and just use JavaScript. So it's amazing in a different way. It doesn't, like there's no user interface widgets in React. Not that there's none. You could probably include them from somewhere. Someone probably has created them, but it doesn't care about that. It's more about the the um, the studs in the walls than the picture hanging on the wall or the door. You know, it's like it's like an internal thing that you use to do stuff under the hood. You know, or more like a better analogy would be like a car. It's it's the engine that you use, it's not, it doesn't care about the seats of the dashboard or how you want it, want the fit and finish to be in the cabin. So Jonathan, we're running out of time and we've covered a lot of information. It seems that uh, many of these topics could be shows in their own right. You've given us a really good overview of the native ecosystem and it sounds like you're really excited about React Native. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about mobile development or about React Native that you think we should cover? Mm, I wouldn't. I mean, we talked about React Native a lot. It's not, it's not the thing I'm most excited about in mobile, honestly, but the things that I'm most excited about in mobile probably are a little bit more of a stretch to call applications. So, you know, I'm super interested in machine learning and AI because of the capabilities that it can add you know, the virtual assistant concept can add to a mobile phone that you have with you always and is always on and virtually always connected. I'm super interested in uh, chatbots, which I think are, I just think they're going to be, it, it's not like I think mobile apps are going to go away, but most people have, I think, 10 to 12 applications on their phone that they use on a regular basis. In the top 10, nine of them are owned by Facebook and Google and the other one is Snapchat. So the concept of creating a mobile app that is going to be a long-term, you know, like squeezing into that list 
is I just feel like that 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 race is over and Facebook and Google won it. So I think it's, you know, it depends on your use case. Like the things that get me excited are a little bit more like, yeah, it's really cool that with React you can build these these native apps. People still want native apps. You can build them with your web skills. I love that. You can repurpose it for the web. I love that. I don't feel like that's where things are happening though. Like, uh, not I shouldn't say happening. That is where things are happening. I don't feel like that's the future. For me, the future is uh, more conversational computing interfaces, whether text-based, voice-based, or both, and and a, a continued proliferation of peripherals that are enabled by mobile, things like Amazon Alexa and Google Home, and you know those sorts of things, the wearables and medical devices, and and all of those things I think are in play for mobile development. So. The reason I say that is because, dear listener, I don't want you to feel like, you know, you need to make this app to put in the app store to be playing in the mobile space. If you're more of a back-end person, build a chatbot. Go to, uh, what is it, api.ai. You can build a chatbot right now for Slack that, that'll install in Slack and Facebook Messenger and, and so on and so forth. There's like a dozens of integrations possible. There's so many cool things to talk about. If you're building mobile apps, React is definitely something to look at. But if you want to do other things in mobile, there's a million other things to talk about. So, Thanks for pointing out these other possibilities. And um, I, I don't want to restrict my idea of mobile apps just to native apps. And it's been really helpful to have you on the show and give that broad perspective. Jonathan, where can listeners find out more about you and follow what you're doing? best place would be, especially for this audience, would be the other podcasts I do. I do three other podcasts. You mentioned two of them. Uh, one is The Freelancer's Show, which is for folks who are perhaps going out on their own to do software development. Uh, another one is Ditching Hourly, which is for a you know similar audience, independent software developers who recognize that hourly billing is a mistake and something they don't enjoy. And then a, a more futurist technology podcast that I don't think we mentioned earlier called Terrifying Robot Dog that I do with my co-host Kelly Shaver. And we talk about how technology is affecting the way we interact with the world. So depending on where you're at, dear listener, uh, one or the other or the other of those might be of interest. We'll have links to those shows in our show notes. Jonathan Stark, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. For Software Engineering Radio, this has been Nate Black. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.